I just had a flash at some of my earlier years at CCLA. There was a period where, it was quite a long period, that I was working at McDonnell Douglas and also senior monk at, at CCLA. And I'm very involved. I think it was 73, I, I was the, uh, it was the first time we had an ango, and I was the chuso for that. And Maizumi Roshi introduced forms to us up until that period. Now, I had been with him since 67. This was 73. We had not eaten orioki before that 73. We didn't know what orioki was. Uh, we didn't know gakis. You do, you do gakis and tayas and all kinds of services. And He brought his brother, a younger brother, Jimpu, some of you may have met him. He was here for the evidence installation. He was, he stayed for a year and trained me. And we introduced a lot of things. But that three-month ango period, I was still working, and I was basically supporting the center. In the beginning years, Roshi supported it as being a, he was a gardener. And then I joined, and pretty much our salaries that were supporting the place, and didn't really need us full-time. There was some things going on, but not... So that ongo period, what I did is I, I was a manager at McDonald Douglas, and I said, well, this is a special three months for me. I'd like to take a, a, a week off every month, because we had a session each month. And I'd like to take a day off each week, and that, week, that day we did a lot more training, and I'd like to take two hours off each day. <laughs> and they were very accommodating. And there was running back and forth between the busy world of getting man to Mars and uh, the Zendo. And I remember the period of time in which I thought, this is a little crazy, running back and forth, you know, switching gears. And then I remember a time in which, hey, there's no more switching. And it was the same. It didn't matter whether it was a McDonnell Douglas or the Zendo. So... It wasn't that I learned how to bring something from one place to the other. I think I dropped uh, what happens for that all of a sudden to be able to realize that that, that state of mind is not, or, or whatever, can be a full life, can, can be 24 hours, I think has something to do with dropping some ideas of what that's supposed to be like. Something to do with realizing that 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 uh, uh, this is it. Do you think you were able to do that, have, have that uh, view, because you were doing so much zazen? Because I wondered in looking at the videotape when she said at this point it seems you're in board meetings more than contemplation or whatever she said, I mean, that seems to be the difficulty for me when I get involved in activities, is that somehow my sitting practice will either suffer or it's just very difficult for me to find a, va- a balance so that I'm not going on some sort of memory, so that my, you know what I'm saying, so that I don't just have some sort of philosophy rather than it really feeling like post-meditation practice. Mm-hmm. That seems to be where I, um, it's hard to do. Yeah, well, I... I... And so the, I, I would uh, say that there are different periods. Again, one has to look at one's life. Uh, for me, it turns out that it's, it suffices to uh, just sit six hours every morning and 
then work 24 hours, and then... Um, there's no problem. I think that, that the sitting... has to be a constant part of the day. That, 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 now, I'm sure it doesn't have to be. I hate to make these categorical statements, but for me, I have found that, that I need to sit a certain amount a day. And I think each of you have to look at what's that right amount for you. For me, it's about an hour in the morning. I, I can tell I'm missing something when I don't do that. It's like eating, like sleeping, I used to be able to get by with four hours of sleep. I need more sleep now. I take it. Um, if I felt I needed two hours of zazen, I would take it. There's a certain amount that I, f I can tell a difference in myself. And I look at myself. And I think everybody's got to do that. Look at what's the right, um, how to live their life. I know that I'm not doing enough body work. I know that. Um, and I'm not doing it. I'm taking that and I'm not chastising myself for it. But I've got to look at all those different different pieces. Um, the thing that's, that's, that's tricky about Zazen is private sitting versus group sitting. And, and let me just say something about that for a second. In our, in, the, in our tradition, there's an emphasis on group sitting. And I think there's a big value f to that. <sighs> it doesn't always work that you can sit with a group. If it doesn't, that doesn't mean you're not supposed to sit. You're supposed to sit daily. Just like you're supposed to breathe daily and eat daily. And I think one of the problems that I've seen sometimes is people feeling that if they can't get to a group sitting, then they don't have to sit. That that's, the, that that's what Zazen is about. And that's a, a, a cop-out. Again, you've got to look at your life. Now, you may say that in order for your sitting practice to be consistent, that you need to get to a group X amount of times because you need that support. Uh, or you may feel that you want to offer that support. It works both ways. You want to offer to the group your Zazen. Then you've got to do that. But just because you can't get to a group, maybe it's too far away or whatever, doesn't mean you, you can't sit. There's no life that gets so busy that you can't sit. I, I, it's just like a life getting so busy, oh, I have no more time to eat. You can never say that. I mean, life can get really busy, but you wouldn't say that. There's always time. Okay, there's, i got about four more themes, and we're, we're going to run out of time. But I wanted to, there was some beautiful lines in this. I just wanted to, to uh, finish with them. The, the, unfortunately, when I get to these kind of things, I have to use my glasses. I'm reading about Laura Sims. She's wonderful. How can we help someone and empower them at the same time? That's a wonderful question. Who's got the answer? How can we empower? How can we help someone and empower them at the same time? Who wants to comment? 
people their skills, skills in the bakery and so forth. Aren't you empowering those people? Giving them... Empowering themselves? Yeah, I, I felt um, empowered here. Generally, I think, with a feeling of support and left to my own devices, like at the same time. So that something gets worked through somehow. Empowerment has to come from the person themselves. It's not a given. You can't empower someone. You can help by letting them, by letting them change you, by letting them, they see that they've moved something. That's power. See, it was a beautiful question. Yet, yeah, some beautiful questions. Linda, there was, um, The woman Linda Price at, at our attendance meeting last night said, uh, Halloween's coming so, and Thanksgiving. What, what's Grace and family going to do? So I said, hey, Linda, that's a good question. What are you going to do? And she said, well, maybe we should organize a party. And then somebody else says, I don't want any parties. We've had enough parties. I want to be in my home alone with my kids. And somebody else said, how come we only have one key? We gave one key to everybody for their apartments. I was Yvonne. She got up. Hey, Bernie, how come we only got one key? Yvonne, make as many keys as you want. But I always get, you get two keys whenever you go anywhere. Didn't you get two keys when you got your house? No, Yvonne, I didn't get two keys. <laughs> Um, there's a book How Can I Help a beautiful book Ram Dass and Paul Gorman actually Paul Gorman wrote it and in, in some sense it's a funny question for us almost implicit is uh, you really can't help I think you can learn I, I, I like to put it that way how can I learn the most There's a, you know Ariratna from uh, Sri Lanka? He's another Gandhi kind of guy. He comes to the States every summer. Very, very sweet guy. He's a, a lay Buddhist who uh, was teaching high school in Sri Lanka about 30, God, I don't know how long ago. I was going to just say in the 40s. I'm not sure when. It was quite a while ago. And decided that what he was teaching, he felt that what he was teaching was uh, English imperialism. So he stopped teaching, and he went to the poorest village in Sri Lanka, which has some poor villages. And he went, and he called the people together, and he said, what do you need? And they said, water. They didn't have any drinking water. So he says, well, what are we going to do about that? I said, we don't know, otherwise we have water. <laughs> and they said, well, maybe we should call somebody in who knows something about water. So together they figured out how to make some wells and they built some wells. And he went to the next town, next poorest town, and he gathered people together and he said, what do you need? And they said, such and such. He says, well, I know some people in this other village who know how to do things. Maybe we should invite them over. And brought them over. 
And they all sat down and figured out how to get what they needed, which may have been some roads or I can't remember. Uh, he now has about 30,000 villages in a movement called uh, Sarvadaya, which means enlightenment for all. And about uh, 4 million followers in, in Sri Lanka. And we've become very friendly. And he, there's a similar feeling. He, we become friendly because he, he feels we're doing something similar to his movement in Yonkers. And the, the key is that he goes to learn from the people. And he's, I, I think that's the key. That is, if we can become students and gather the people together and learn, then they get empowered. And we learn, and so we both win. And it's a nice uh, kind of situation. So to figure out how to help people teach us um, might be a way of helping and empowering, I guess. So it almost is the same word. If you can empower someone, uh, uh, forget the word help, if you can just empower someone, and as you said, they have to empower themselves. So if you can figure out the upaya by which, it's sort of like enlightenment. If you can figure out the upaya by which the person starts empowering themselves, then you've learned, because you've learned how to figure out that upaya. <laughs> and, um, I don't know, it, starts, it all starts happening. So, another beautiful question. How can we be a catalyst for someone to help themselves? And that's, there's the rub. How do you figure out those upayas? How can we be a catalyst for someone to help themselves to provide their own solutions? Now imagine if we raised all those questions about ourselves. How can we be a catalyst to help ourselves to empower ourselves? Or how can we be a catalyst to help ourselves to find our own solutions? So... I don't know what you guys needed me for. He's got all the right questions. All you have to do is think about it and you'll come up with the right answers. How can you be a catalyst to yourself? The question itself is driving you to the answer that you've got to be a catalyst to yourself. Right? Well, you can't be a catalyst for someone else. You've got to be a catalyst for yourself. I mean, you can, maybe, but let's, drive, let's put the question to ourselves. question is that just from a chemical sense, the, the catalyst fits both the, the uh, compound that it's reacting with and in some sense the changing compound only then it gets kicked out and I guess in, in chemical terms it's kicked out unchanged but there's been all kinds of transformation, transformational, the structure of the catalyst gets moved around and bent and, and deformed in the process of bonding with the compound that's going to undergo a reaction. And the reaction releases enormous amounts of energy. And then the catalyst just goes on back into its original state. But the amount of meeting that has to happen in order for a catalyst to, to do its work is, is extraordinary. Uh, at least my mental image of it is. And I guess the pictures that are drawn in the chemistry books make me think that. Um, so it, it, the, the notion of how much of the usual sense of who I am, I might have to leave behind in order to meet somebody 
who's preparing to undergo a change, um, that means something to me. But are, are we all here with this? I mean, this question is, is implying that people can provide their own solutions, which implies that we can provide our own solutions. And does everybody here buy that? You're not seeking anything from anyone else, are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what you're, you're here to provide your own solution, right? Or are you leaning on someone or expecting something to come somewhere else? So is that, you're leaning? Okay, so this is, this is a, a Zen teacher's question. How can you be a catalyst to drive yourself to provide your own solution? I, I think that's a... That's worthy of remembering. Uh, I had marked down here in big letters expectations that we talked about already. But then along with that, I, I also had marked down failure, which I talked about on that tape, but we didn't talk about. That is as, as important as, as not being so addicted to your expectations is not being concerned about failure. I don't know how many of you are concerned about failure. Um, but that's very limiting if you worry too much about that. When you do something, I mean, we are going to have some expectations. Let's, we, we talked about not having expectations. You said we should. I said we will. So now, <laughs> now we're, we're, we got that one down. We, we're going to have some expectations. So knowing that we're going to have some expectations, let's take the next step and not get so caught up with failures relating to our expectations. Believe me, we're going to have failures. You got it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a roll of a dice. You can't roll the dice always the way you want them. <laughs> that's, that's rule number one in Buddhism. It came, comes uh, right after everything has changed and right before it's all suffering. They won't always come out the way you want the dice to come out. It's, um... But you got to take that into account. That's, uh, that's one of the laws of creating great business. You've got to champion your cause. And, and what happens is that a lot of times it's failures. And then you get browbeaten. You, you lost all this money, you screwed up this, you screwed up that, and all of, after a while, you stop taking chances. You stop champing. You've got to take. You've got to go with it. As, as somebody said, you've got to uh, go with your juices. Take some chances. Taking some chances means step by step. You gotta put one foot after the other. You don't know when you put that next foot out where the hell it's gonna land. You can't worry about where it's gonna land. Otherwise you're not gonna take that step. So they sort of go together, the, the notion of expectations, the notion of failure. I'm not saying that you want failures. You can hate them. You say, ah, oh, shit, I failed again. That's all right. You can hate them, but they're going to happen. There's no way they're not going to happen. We all know that. So why do we get so caught up and so angry with ourselves about it? And then I also have in big letters, high achievers. And I have that only because I was told by somebody that there are a lot of high achievers here. Uh, I'm a high achiever too. I don't, I, there's nothing wrong about being a high achiever. As long as you know it. If you're going to be a high achiever, that means you're going to take big risks. And you're going to have huge failures. And you're going to have heavy expectations. You're going to have all of this stuff in spades. Well, that's what you get for being a high achiever. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with it, as long as you, again, recognize it. There's nothing wrong with being a low achiever. There's nothing wrong with being a middle achiever. My whole point is just see what the ingredients are. There's nothing wrong with any of the set of ingredients. Salt is salt, and pepper is pepper, and you don't want to mix them up. Anise is anise, and, and, and oregano, and I like hot pepper. They're all different ingredients. They're what they are. And as long as we can see them, we, we can work with them. That's all. One of the things that bothered me a little bit this morning when you were talking, and this brings it up again, is that this sort of sense of in accepting who you are, is there room for change? I mean, sure. It, I mean, that's, again, first law of Buddhism. Because, it, I mean, what's to make somebody from being oregano one day and... Believe me, there's no way not to change. You don't even have to worry about it. If you could look each time at the ingredients, you're going to see they're different. No way do they stay the same. That's just the law of Buddhism. And it will become clear if you clearly look at that. You'll see that it's always different. But isn't it part of what makes human beings very special? I mean, it's part of somebody else's question this morning, that we can, in fact, project into something that we want to happen and keep ourselves going on a certain track despite the, the tendency to change. I mean, you can see that a building could go up there and have that building go up despite the fact that you kind of get tired of doing it in the middle of it or um, see something else that could be done. But because you made a commitment to the people to put it up, you'll go for it. And this morning it, you made it sound like, well, if I, and if I don't feel that commitment, then I walk away from it. But it seems too relativistic to me to say that it's just as good for you to walk away from that commitment as for you to follow through on. Okay, you're, you're putting good. I didn't talk about good or bad. I just said it could happen. Good or bad is going to be relative to how you look at it and relative how you look at it and relative how you look at it and relative to how I look at it. Now, I walk away from it because I know that it's killing me. That may be good for me from my perspective. It may be horrible from the people that want to move in there. I'm not talking about good or bad. I'm looking at Clearly seeing what what's going on and making your best decision. Now, it doesn't stop you from having expectations and all the, all the things we talked about. I expect to end homelessness by, for those who don't want it by uh, the year 2000. And I'm going to work my damnedest to do it. And I'm not going to fail. And I'll cry if I fail. <laughs> but um, I see that that's my Michigan's craziness. We all have Michigan's. What makes the world go round? I think it goes round. Uh, then I had another big note that I wanted to just mention too. I have this in big letters to remind me to remind you that I'm not talking about Zen. Uh, I am talking a lot about me and perhaps my understanding of life. And that's about as far as I'm willing to commit. <laughs> started this discussion by saying that Zen is uh, synonymous with See? Yeah, that's my understanding of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my understanding of it. 
I just learned that. Uh, I, I never said that before. This is something I picked up the other week. I was listening to a tape of a, one of my students is an actor, Michael O'Keefe, and his father is one of the circuit speakers in the AA movement. Ray O'Kay is his name. Um, we're going to do a book together. We're also going to do a, uh, some retreats together. And I was listening to a tape, and he starts off, All right, you guys! He was talking, he's a lawyer. He was a, he was a White Plains judge, famous guy. Um, an amazing guy. He, he graduated from Fordham at the low, youngest age ever of a lawyer out of Fordham and with the highest grades. He was an alcoholic from the age of about eight. Uh, he's been sober now for about 30 years. And then he was addressing 200 lawyers and talking about the 12 steps. And he starts off by saying, Listen, guys, I'm here. And I ain't going to talk to you about alcoholism. I ain't going to talk to you about AA. I don't know anything about that stuff. I'm going to talk about me. And you know how in the AA movement says there's no opinions, no beliefs? Well, I got a lot of them. And I'll have to tell you that what I'm saying isn't the absolute Bible, but I believe it is. <laughs> That's how he starts. Interesting guy. So we're going to have some fun uh, talking. But now I've learned that I, I should start things off by saying I'm not talking about Zen, I'm talking about me. See, I, I, you've got to keep learning. Okay, uh, I've got all your questions, but I can't read my writing, so I am, and I keep knocking this clip out. The great Gate of Sweet Nectar. Let me talk a little about some of the themes that are in that, and, and maybe we'll pick up your questions again. I hope we're answering a lot of them as we go through this. This is a, a wonderful service, I think. And I just want to uh, point out a, a few themes. The beginning part is as the beginning part is an invocation to to bring all of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the different realms to, to join us in the service. Now that happens whenever you have Jakai or Tokido. You know, do you do that in English or Japanese? English? The first, some of these, it, it's invocation. In, um, in Tantric Buddhism and in the Tendai school, uh, Rituals have been created as a form of practice. Sometimes the rituals go on for a week. Tendai School has a particular ritual that goes on for 10 years. And I met a man who had done that particular ritual three times in this sort of a saint in Japan. And part of it involves uh, circumambulating Mount Hie, three years of walking and bowing, months of fasting, it's all kind of things. Usually all those rituals start with first inviting in all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas to take part. Well, we could skip that because we're all here and go on to the next. 
The next is called the supplication for the raising of the Bodhi mind. This particular service is like communion for those who know Christianity. Within many traditions, food, here it's pizza, becomes an essential part of what's going on. And a sharing of food. Well, Buddhism, as you know, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha was Hindu, and, and in the Hindu tradition, uh, there's uh, food was a big part of the the, uh, the rituals. Uh, it stayed true in, within Buddhism. There are offerings when you have memorial services. Not sure if you make food offerings. It's so this is the Buddhist equivalent of communion as a service. And the food that's being offered is the raising of the Bodhi mind. That is the, the mind of compassion, the mind of, of enlightenment. So the service is all about feeding the hungry spirits, the Bodhi mind. Now how do we feed? We have to raise it. So this is about raising the Bodhi mind. And that's why it says supplication for the raising of the Bodhi mind. And first is the vow that we will feed everyone. And it's a, say it's a very basic statement. Raising the Bodhi mind, the supreme meal is offered to all the hungry spirits in the ten directions. So that's the, the first important message. That all you have to do, if you want to do social action, the only thing you have to do is raise the Bodhi mind. That's all you have to do. And supreme meal will be offered to all the hungry spirits in the ten directions throughout space and time filling the smallest particle to the largest space isn't that beautiful I mean that's all it is then the next thing all you hungry spirits in the ten directions please gather here one of my members when, my first, when we first introduced the English version one of my members said are you kidding you want all of those evil spirits to come here because she took the hungry spirits to be good and bad. And actually she asked, does it mean just the good ones? <laughs> I said, no, it's all, all of them. All of them. And she said, well, that terrifies me. I don't want the evil ones here. Now, who are the evil ones? This is, this is the second very important part of this kind of practice. And, and it's in relation to somebody uh, asked me about, was talking about a group in Albany, working in a shelter, and that there's alienation going on. This says you can't alienate from anything. So when I first started to do this work, there was a guy that I knew fairly well, Jack Meehan, who was, uh, uh, he was the, uh, oversaw the Peter Grace Foundation. They give a lot of money, mostly to Catholic endeavors. And when I went to start this, to talk to him about the work that I was going to do, he said, Bernie, listen to me. Don't deal with the government. Get the money private from people. He says, then you don't have to worry about their rules and regulations. They'll kill you. I said, well, Jack, it's easy for you to talk. You're talking about the Catholic Church and, and Peter Grace is fairly, has a few pennies. So they had a lot of money. They're easy for you to talk. I said, but also, Jack, I, they're part of the ingredients. I can't let them out. I have to invite them in. I have to learn to work with every ingredient. If you leave them, if I say, no, I don't want to deal with them, I start 
that game of alienation of me and them. I don't want to work with them because they're the they're the they're the enemy. The mandala game, which this is, says you got to invite everything in. All the hungry spirits, what you call the demons, invite them in, and learn how to work with them. Extremely important. If you're in business, your competitors, invite them in, learn how to work with them. Exactly. You got to learn how to work with them. Now, maybe working with them is to kill them. I'm not saying that. You didn't hear me say that. But you got to invite them in. Why? Because they're in. It's it's like not looking at some part of yourself because you don't want to see it. You got to see it and figure out how to work with them. When I started to do my work in Yonkers, there was a funny kind of black activist. He fought the integration of Yonkers. He was fighting the NAACP. He was fighting all of the black groups that I thought were good groups. He called me a pimp. He said that what I was after was to bring the black women out of the motels, use them as slave labor in the bakery. Then after a year when I was used them up, throw them back into the motels. That's what, my, what I was about. And he, and he used that word. Uh, also a good friend of mine is a Catholic priest that works in the area. Called him a pimp too. So at least I was in good company. Um, his name is Stonewall Odom. And Stonewall and I are now good friends. And he has a whole different way of, of viewing things. I could have hid that in the closet. But I didn't. Just as I'm saying it now. I learned how to work with it. I learned where he was coming from. I learned how to work with Stonewall as one of the ingredients. Why? Because he's there. I could have hit him. And he'd still be out there calling me names or doing this or that. And maybe it doesn't matter. He calls everybody names. But I read this sutra and it says, All you hungry spirits in the ten directions, please gather here. And I'm a, uh, I follow the boss. Says all, I say okay, and I try to learn, try to invite them. They all won't come so easily, but in a sense, they're there. In a sense, they're there. Huh? I always get stymied. <laughs> I always get stymied, but that's okay. I don't mind being stymied. It means uh, when I play go, I like to I like to get somebody who's much better than me. That's going to stymie me. If I don't get stymied, I'm not growing. That's why I go into the streets. I get stymied. What's wrong with stymied? The, the only problem with that is the expectation that I'm not going to get stymied. Somebody, you were saying, you're working with A's all around you and you're confused. Well, why shouldn't you be confused? Hell, it's confusing. <coughs> I'd be confused. I'm going to work with A's. I am actually on a steering committee in Yonkers on A's. And it is confusing as hell. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is I, you don't want it to be confusing. Well, okay, you don't want it to be. Well, that's your problem. It's confusing. Now that I know it's confusing, I can still work with it. It's confusing. It's difficult. I'll try my best. And I may fail. And I probably will fail. It's, it's, it is a horrible scene. 
With the homeless, we can talk about it. When I work in AIDS, I won't be able to talk about it. Because, see here it says, all you hungry spirits in ten directions, please gather here. We spoke, as I said, I'm on a steering committee for working on AIDS, and we, we're, we're going to build, not the Zen community this year, but this coalition that I'm on is starting a, a uh, house, permanent housing for homeless HIV positive people. And we spoke to the city council and said, uh, would you support this project? And they said, if you mention it out loud, we will fight it and make sure it doesn't happen. Don't mention it, and we won't say anything. So that's not, in a sense, it's inviting them in, finding out what the scene is, and then working with that. But we're certainly not going to tell the people that live next door to that house. I mean, that whole project has to, by, because of the ingredients right now, that project has to be incognito. I know a group in Albany that's doing a project like that where the board decided to bring it out in the open. Again, they looked at all the ingredients. And they said, we'll bring it out in the open because we want the laws tested. The laws say that this place is legally can't be blocked from being there. They know that by doing that, they, by taking that stand, they're going to help break down some fair housing laws that may make it clear and make it easier for the next group. They also know that by doing that, it may be now five years or ten years before that house will open to take care of the people that need being taken care of. So that's a decision they're making based on the ingredients because it will be in the courts and people will be blocking it for that long of a period of time through all kinds of ways. They could be open in a year if they kept it incognito. But they are looking at the scene and saying it's, it's a little bigger picture. So they're making those things with their eyes open, with seeing what the situation is. And it's confusing. And there's no, there's no one answer that's going to resolve it all. But why should there be? Why should we even think that there, that there are easy ways out? I don't know. So this says, All you hungry spirits in the ten directions, please gather here. Sharing your distress, I offer you this food. See, the point is, if you don't share the distress, you won't offer the food. You'll keep it. The raising of the Bodhi mind implies that you will share the distress and you will offer it. If you don't, your, all your attention is on yourself being fed. And then we talk about going up the mountain, going down the mountain. Going up, attaining one's own realization. That's what Mielopai was talking about. Going down, you're working for others. One of my uh, son Roshi said, you should always be doing both. You've got to be going up and down at the same time. You can't neglect one for the other. And many of us will say, well, until we go up far enough, we don't know how to come down. Well, that's not life. You're always going up and down at the same time. Or you're always in that situation where you need it. You may, you may not want to be doing both, but you'll be thrown into those situations. You may think that there's some time at which now you've got it all under control and now you can go down the mountain. Uh, that's just another 
I mean, that's a, that's a, it's, it's a real delusion that we have. I'm not saying it's fake. It's a real one. I certainly had it. There was a period of my life where I felt that the concentration was on, on getting up that mountain and that everything else be damned, including my wife, my kids. Uh, from where I sit now, I think that's just a major delusion. The real one could not have changed. I can't go backwards and... and that's who I was. That's what I was doing. And, but I think uh, you can be going up and down at the same time. I pray that all who receive this offering will return its merits to all Buddhas and all creations throughout space and time. In this way, they will be thoroughly satisfied. That's step 12. Of, that's the... Um, the last step in the A movement, which says that if you don't work for others, you're going to slip. It's the bodhisattva ideal in Mahayana Buddhism. If you don't work for others, it won't work. That's what it says. And it's the old adage, if you don't go out to teach, you won't learn. When Yastani Roshi, when Maizumi Roshi finished studies with Yastani Roshi, Yasanari says, well, now you've got to start teaching. And he said, I'm not ready. I want a couple more years of living under the, under the railroad track or something. And he said, Yasanari said, no, you've got to go out because that's how you learn. See, don't think you're a teacher. You know that you're beginning to study. And I actually told Roshi the same thing when I left. I was going to move to New York. And I said to him, um, I'm not going to, uh, he was going to give me some money. I said, no, I don't want any money. I'm, in fact, I'm not going to teach. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go to New York. I says, you can't. You've. I says, I trained you all these years. You've got to go teach. I says, no, nah, but I, I don't. Uh, I want some time to, to just study. So he gave me the old line that Yasunari Roshi gave him. But he'd given me that line a number of times. I remember when Yasunari Roshi told him that. He says, you've got to do it. I said, no, no, I need to. So then he pulled out the, the uh, coup de grace. He said, okay, then I'm going to support you. And he knew that I was this proud... Americans, I said, no, I can't be supported by you. I'll, I'll go teach. <laughs> so that was uh, with the understanding that it wasn't teaching. It was learning. It was studying. That is, you've got to return the offering. So whatever you've received, whatever your offering has been, it's not really going to work for you unless you give it back. That's why at the end of every service that you do, there's something called a dedication. Do you call it a dedication? In Japanese, it's called an echo. You know what echo means? Transference of merit. A returning of the merit. And read that dedication. It says, I give back all the merits. Whatever you've received, you've got to give it back. Otherwise, it's no good. Well, uh, you know, if you just read through this, you see that it's, it's saying it's good stuff. I further beseech you to sustain me day and night and give me courage to fulfill my vows. Before it says, please vow to liberate all others throughout all space and time. Um, what you're doing every night, and I already told you that be careful. Those vows are, are, uh, have a way of, of turning your life around. 
but then I further beseech you to sustain me day and night and give me courage to fulfill my vows. It really starts with befriending the self. You can't neglect yourself. You can't neglect your family. It reaches out. I'm, my feeling is you've got to be working in all those spheres, but you can't. Somebody said that they that they want to do all these things, but I forgot how they put it. Was it you? That in some way you were neglecting yourself or feeling that you might be or neglecting... Sometimes I feel like um, I, don't have, I don't fulfill the needs or I'm not there for my husband, my children, my mother, who, who all really need me too. And that, that's important to me. And I have a lot of, I guess, guilt about that or that makes me feel bad that I can't fill those needs. And what I want to do all these other things too. Sure. It's, it's hard to make this Yeah. My own sense is that you've got to, if, if, if the inner foundation if the befriending the self, if you're not taking care of yourself and your family, if that's, if that's not happening, it's going to fall apart. It's like the inner foundation of what you're building. That you want to build the whole edifice. You want to work in all those spheres. But that's my sense. If you don't take care of those inner pieces, you, it will fall apart. So... The biggest problem, I don't know if it's the biggest problem, but I, I belong to uh, an interfaith group on homelessness, which consists of a lot of ministers. Uh, this is a New York City group. All, the, all of the various denominations working in homelessness work. And one of the committees, one of, it's, there's four major aspects to it, but one of them is uh, how to give sustenance to those working in the field of homelessness. Because it's just like with any family. When we, when we start working with our families, if we skip the mother and we just start working with the kids, that's a mess. Same thing if, 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 you, if, the, if the workers in the field of homelessness or wherever, or you as an individual, if, if that's not nourished, how the hell can you nourish the next thing? So in some sense, Zazen, the Zazen you're doing, is nourishing yourself. And I'm saying you've got to then also reach out with that nourishment. You've got to extend that nourishment. To the degree that you're nourished, you have to extend it out. But you have to start with that nourishment in yourself, and then you could reach it out. If you neglect that, Zazen is one way of nourishing. Giving time is another way of nourishing. You have to look at what nourishes you. We're all different. Uh, what nourishes me may not be what nourishes you. So you have to look at it. And, and you have to take that. You have to take that. Then you can give it out. That, that's my sense. And that's, that's what I think it's, it's saying here. I further beseech you to sustain me day and night and give me courage to fulfill my vows. Uh, um, in a sense, that's what we're doing here. This is a nourishment, hopefully. Uh, Certainly the Zazen part is. I don't know if this part is, but... What is the you? I beseech you. It seems odd to me. Well, who are you going to beseech? Well, myself. 
Okay. Uh, I don't care who you answer. Whoever you feel like beseeching, that's okay. The question was, can the hungry spirits sustain me? Who are the hungry spirits? All those dark spots and places that we don't want to see in ourselves. Can they sustain you? I guess the image that I have of them sustaining me is not a very happy one. It's like a... Like anger or pain sustaining me seems like it might sustain me in directions that would hurt other people. So, I'm just trying to use it as a way to explore some things. You raise three, three images the hungry spirits, it's important that we see who they are, what they are. Sustaining, that's important to see what that is. And me, just sustain me. Got to see what that me is. Now me, before we talked about that I transmigrate through the six realms. So at times I'm a hungry spirit. At times I'm demon sometimes I'm heavenly maybe a lot of times I'm heavenly <laughs> so there's those three nice little koans huh who are the hungry spirits what does the sustenance mean and who's me and there's different sets there With all our love, with all our spirit, and with all our might, inviting misery and suffering no longer, we vow to accomplish the way. It wasn't in the original. I, I, uh, uh, this is not a direct translation. This whole thing is not a direct translation. I take a lot of liberties being a Zen teacher. And so this is not a straight translation of the Kanruman. Uh, it's very close, and it's definitely the correct spirit. It's just not the <laughs> So this line, with all our love, with all our spirit, and with all our might, actually comes from the uh, Old Testament. <coughs> it comes from a place, something called the Shema Yisrael. And it's on every Jewish door, when you, you know those uh, mezuzahs, and there's something written inside, that's what's written inside. And when Christ's was asked the two important teachings this was one of them and the other was something about uh, love your neighbor as you would yourself which we have an, uh, a Buddhist equivalent too but uh, at any rate this is that's that line with all our love with all our spirit and with all our might and then it doesn't in in the uh, Old Testament it says you, you should love thy God with all your love with all your might with all your spirit so I, I thought that's a very important line. So I brought it right into our... But it is. I mean, what, all it's saying, 
and it doesn't say what it's like orioki orioki is a bowl of, of just the right amount it doesn't say what's the right amount of food for you it's saying take the right amount don't take more don't take less so take the right amount what this is saying is with all your might I don't care who you are and it doesn't say what that means for some it's, it's this and some it's that it doesn't matter it's saying with all your might so if you're doing koan study with all your might with all your spirit and with all your love very important the uh, next page is is uh, the Ranis if you say those you will be uh, you will enter into the pure land immediately <coughs> but you have to say them correctly and I purposely typed them wrong so that <laughs> you'll never figure it out but anyway, these are the five Buddha families that I talked about in the beginning. And in this particular service, during this time, uh, you're inviting the denizens of the five families, all of them, to come into this service. The whole beginning of this thing is, is, bring, is inviting everybody in. Everybody in. The whole mandala, the whole, the, the whole thing, the whole egg, all stuff has to be invited in. And then uh, it's simply giving, uh, ordaining them all and, and uh, feeding them all with the Bodhi mind that you've all raised and uh, realizing, as it says here, that uh, now I've raised the Bodhi mind, I am the Buddhas and they are me. So that's just uh, realizing what it's all about. But I, I just wanted mainly to, to deal with that, that first part to cover the fact that this is not about alienation and about dealing with those pieces that you feel comfortable with. You've got to deal with the whole pie. Um, this service is, is done with drums and with bells and with uh, we do it with the shofar. It's a fantastic cacat... What's the word? Yeah. Um, it's... Do you do sedaki? Oh, there's a, a once-a-year service of feeding the hungry spirits that's done in, in Japan, done in L.A., where we actually set up a, a whole altar opposite the regular altar with the five, colors of the five Buddha families. These five Buddha families, there's a fantastic uh, <coughs> uh, fantastic what? Fant it's, it's fantastic. There's a uh, all kinds of characteristics and colors and smells and tastes. Buddhism has, has taken these five families and made a very elaborate thing out of it. Uh, did, the, did the rooms exist in Naropa when you were there? Yeah, it dates back to, this all dates back to India, but uh, got really elaborated in the Shingon, in the Tantric Japanese Shingon in, in uh, Tibetan schools and then Trungpa Rinpoche in this country did a lot with that I mean he created at Naropa they have these rooms of different colors that represent the different families and there were positions for, the, for each family and, and he created a, a method of psychology based on it and they actually have a group home in Boulder that works with these families and all kinds of stuff uh, it's, it's sort of fascinating and it's, it's, all, it's all in here and when that 
altar is built, it has those colors, those flags for each of the colors. The Buddhist flag has those five families. You've probably seen the Buddhist flag. It's, it's those five colors. Okay. Let's... Let's open for questions. Unless we're exhausted. Yeah. Um, I would like to hear you speak a little bit on the difference between compassion and doing good. Like in your experience with working with the homeless and the all acts. Yeah, somebody somebody raised something about doing good. Work with sleep. I got to remember that one. Um, no, not no. Somebody said not to do harm. Were you guys talking about the three pure precepts? When you said doing good and you said doing not to do harm, somebody said. Did you have those in mind? No. You no, did. You sure? You must have. Well, not this mind. Maybe my other You, you were in a rock suit? Yes. You took three pure precepts? Yes, I did. Okay, what, there's what? Don't do evil. Well, not do evil, good. Doing good, actual act of good for others. Oh. So what, what, what was that? What are, you, what are you saying by doing good then? Were you asking me? But I've never consciously done good in my life. I, I, I wasn't. So your question is something to do with compassion and doing good. Um, instead of doing good, maybe do good. Do gooding. Is what I was kind of getting at. It's, it's well, you're putting it into a negative tone, so you don't want. You calling me a do gooder? No. <laughs> I hope you're not calling me compassionate. <laughs> what? I, I have... See, I'm just well, doing... In, in my own practice, I, I have a, a difficult time understanding when um, doing something that that looks like I'm doing good... Aren't we funny? It's not... Yeah. How much time really do you spend on that? <laughs> too much. And why? I mean, why would you be all engrossed with trying to figure out if you're a do-gooder or whether you're doing this good because it's good to do it or whether it makes you feel good or... Um, my advice to you is if it's going to cause you all of that concern, don't do it. <laughs> but that might be terrible advice. I'm not giving... Don't take my advice uh, unless it works for you. I find that a little bit like, uh, I was going to say masturbating. Now, I don't know why, but it's getting caught up with yourself. There's, there's another extreme. I mean, that's the do-good side. There's the don't-do-bad side. There's a, there's a phrase, there's a, there was a, a guy, uh, an, an Indian Buddhist teacher called Atisha. And I like Atisha. He wrote a lot of slogans. There, and there's a book called Slogans of Atisha. So if anybody wants to have fun, there's a book called The Slogans of a Teacher. One of his slogans, and I use those slogans, one of his slogans is, don't wallow in self-pity. That's the the opposite side. Don't spend all your time trying to figure out whether you're good or not. What's the the purpose of all of that? 
Now, after I said that, uh, I must admit that I spend about four hours a day trying to figure out whether I'm doing good or not. <laughs> yeah, you see how little you can do if you spend all your time trying to figure out. I mean, I think it's important to figure out what's happening. And so I could clearly see the scene. And then acting, because the acting I'm going to do anyway. You're always going to act. And if I could clearly see what's going on, my actions are going to be better. So that's important. To try to get the labels right about it, I don't know. That's an after, that's, that's after seeing quarterbacking, which may be valuable, but I don't know. I, I don't. It's not my game. In the service at the, uh, the well, on the bottom of the page, it says, inviting misery and suffering no longer. Um, is that, that seems kind of different from um, inviting all of the hungry ghosts in. No, no, you've got to learn how to play with them. See, it's somewhere in there it says, they play in the field of the No, it doesn't say play in the field of the Lord. That's Peter Madison wrote that. It says that play, see, I did that too. That was another liberty I took. I wrote, I play in the field of the pure land. That was a takeoff on his book, which is a takeoff on the Bible. Um, yeah, you have to invite it all in. You don't have to feel miserable and suffering and suffer about it. Once you can invite it all in, and that's a trick. Once you can get to that place of inviting it all in, you won't have misery and suffering anymore. Isn't that nice? That's what it says in the first line of the Hatsu trick. Do you believe that? Avilokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, and was therefore relieved of all suffering? See, you can achieve that. I was struck by the same line, and isn't it, isn't it that if you ever stopped inviting them in, what, inviting misery and suffering? No, you invite it. I'm sorry, <coughs> maybe you had a good point. What was well, that? The, 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 it's the invoking, it's the inviting. The, the, is allowing the bees, allowing, is allowing for the peace, and if at one moment you say, I just invite you, there goes the peace, doesn't it? <coughs> That's all food for thought. Somebody back there, yeah? Um, I kind of get the idea that, like, primarily a lot of the reason that you do the work you do is, I mean, of course, for yourself to grow and to, to learn the things from the actions that you participate in. I'm wondering if oftentimes you feel like maybe a lesson is there that you can't grasp it. And then just I tell you the truth. The reason I do what I'm doing, I, can't, I have no choice. It's not even what I, I said that I'm doing it because I want to learn and grow. That's a rationalization. It's what I am. I, I don't think there's anything more than that. I don't, you know, and what I'm going to do, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. It's, it's funny. We, we, we look at ourselves... I mean, we, we're, this is just an unfolding. This whole thing is just an unfolding. And do you think that any of us know why it's unfolding the way it's unfolding? To tell you the truth, I have no idea of why I'm doing what I'm doing. I just use that for dialogue, for conversation, and to get a paya, a way of, you know, I was invited here to talk. And what I'm invited, why I was invited to talk is probably to stimulate something. So I'm throwing out things. 
I'm very contradictory. I throw out things depending on how I feel at the moment. Because I don't know who I am. I really don't. Or why I'm doing what I'm doing. I have no idea. Believe me. You don't feel like, like at each step maybe a lesson is being presented to you? To your oh, I'm sure it is. <coughs> and I'm sure I'm failing to gain the lesson. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's not even a question of okay or not. You know, this is who I am. Now, at the very same time I do that, I am a very rationalizing person. And I examine all these things, and I think a lot about it. And I do reach out for lessons. I'm saying some things that seem contradictory. And they are. They are. Because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a contradiction. And we all are. That's another one of Atisha's slogans. He says, don't be consistent. <laughs> He's a fantastic guy. So, don't wallow in self-pity. Don't be consistent. Michael O'Keefe once was, I saw it in the newspaper, somebody asked him, what's the, most, the, the best thing you've ever learned? And he said, don't be consistent. <laughs> uh, I mean, are you? Are we? Are we? Yeah, or, I mean, what are we? Who are we? We're an unfolding. We're, we're a manifestation of what is. And what's affecting that manifestation is not just in this room. It's the whole thing. If you really grok that, then what, what do you know about yourself? And, and, and what does consistency mean? What can, can you predict? But, not but, and, and at this very moment, I can plan how the whole universe is going to evolve the next minute. Well, I can do that. And I do do that. I plan my universe. And I plan my universe for 10 years and for 20 years. I could, in eight more years, it's going to... Be, I have a Go board. I play Go. And I've got stones laid out all over the place. It's Mishigas. But that's my Mishigas. My craziness. It's the way I am. I've got all these Markov chains <laughs> going in all directions. I bet it's all, it's all bullshit. But I believe in it. I also know that that belief is just what I am. And that that doesn't mean it's going to, next moment I'm going to believe the same thing even, or that it's going to happen that way. I know, well, at least that's the way I feel. I feel that's not going <clears> to... <throat> and I feel it's extremely important to clearly see what these ingredients are and to go for it to say what I want to do, and do it. I want to be enlightened. Fine. Do it. Hakuin Zenji said that if somebody wants to pass through Muji, within one session, they should do it. That it's as, if they really mean it, if they really want to do it, then it's as, it would be as hard to not do it as to throw a rock at a wall that's two feet away and miss the wall. That's what he felt. All it takes is really wanting to do it. That's this with all our love, with all our might, with all our strength. If you can do that, you can do anything. You can jump over the moon. I don't know why you would want to jump over the moon, but you can. <laughs> No? 
you, that's, yeah, you're the one who, who talked about what one person can do. Can one person affect anything? And I don't know... One person affects everything. I, I, I don't know how it works other than by one person affecting. On a trivial way, I mean it's... If you look at history, history is generally... Uh, there's a, there's a brilliant guy who told me this. His name is Larry Brilliant. He's a, a member of... Uh, he's the guy who cured single-handedly. He's a, one of Ram Dass's, uh followers. And single-handedly he cured uh, blindness in uh, Nepal, was it, first? And then moved on. You know, the Seva Foundation. He's, he's a doctor. And he came up with a, a, a tremendous amount of blindness. A, a cataract blindness, I'm not sure. And he came up with a way of, of taking care of it for like $2.00. And really eradicated it. Anyway, Larry Brilliant said um, that history is recorded by two types of people. Generals and religious folks. So we talk about Napoleon era, Hitler era, era uh, Hannibal, and you talk about Christ, Buddha, Mother Teresa. There are people that stand out. Individuals. That the whole history gets named after. Fantastic effect. Now, I say that that's the same with you. Each one of us changes everything. Where that one bright pearl in, in Indra's net? We affect the whole net. And that's the importance of Zazen and the importance of every moment is that that affects everything. And uh, I really sincerely feel that it affects everything throughout all space and time, including the past. So what you do now affects Christ, affects Buddha, affects all the past, all the future, and all space and time. That's pretty powerful. And that's one individual, that's each of us. So, it's, don't mince around, man. <laughs> I may be wrong, but that's how I feel. Expound on the uh, hell crushing and hungry spirit throat opening part of this. <laughs> oh, uh, you know about hungry spirits? Not much. Well, they have they have very thin necks. <laughs> you, have you, you've never seen pictures of hungry spirits? They're uh, pictured as uh, creatures with. Uh, I'm sure you've got them in some of these books. Very thin necks and very big bellies. Bellies are bloated up because they're not getting food. Uh, necks are thin. And they're surrounded with food. But they can't take it in. So, by raising the Bodhi mind, you can uh, allow it to swallow. It's there. You can allow yourself to swallow. That it's, it's all there, but somehow your neck has gotten so thin that you can't swallow it. You can't accept it. And that's why you stay hungry. Somebody said work with sleep. Reminds me of working with poisons and neuroses. You said to work with sleep in order to awaken. In Buddhism we talk about working with the... Well, in the tantric tradition, the whole emphasis is to work using the neuroses. Our neuroses in order to awaken. 
And in Buddhism we talk about the poisons being transformed into virtues. Poison, three poisons are greed, anger, and ignorance. That's, so religion in a sense is, is, uh, becomes alchemy. So how do you work with these certain kinds of materials and transform them into, how to transform sleep into awake, how to transform... Hmm? He was a Buddhist. <laughs> um, I think in a, in a very positive way, that's extremely important, and it can be very uplifting to realize that what you call your neuroses, all the stuff you don't like about yourself, that's the stuff that you can use to transform yourself into an enlightened being. That's manure. That's essential. Um, and you can create ways of practice using, using the neurosis, using what you consider to be the sleep pieces. That's where the action is. So don't, don't feel bad about all of the things you don't like about yourself. Uh, that's the places that are going to help you to grow, I think. That's the stuff that drives us on. And part of the trick is to learn how to use that. Use those pieces. It's, uh, they become the medicine. It's, uh, Tantra Buddhism does that very explicitly, and it's a little dangerous. Because it'll tend to accentuate those aspects in order to to make that transformation but uh, without getting too tricky you can still the, the, for me the key thing if, you, if you're dealing with yourself on it is to realize that the things that you consider so bad about yourself or about others are the things that you can use those very attributes can be utilized to learn about yourself and to grow and I think that relates to that sleep I think, though, that that's so easily said and talked about, but the experience is really what you have to have. Because, well, you know, I mean, especially as a therapist and all that, I mean, all, all that stuff gets talked about. Um, but it's the experience yeah. that really makes a shift. You can talk about it and talk about it. It sounds wonderful. But I agree. It's how do you get the experience. Yeah. Let me check my wallet. <laughs> I, I have most of those written down, the, those how-tos. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of what I was uh, touching upon, sleep in the sense that you mean, <coughs> when we observe ourselves. There's certainly enough material there to, uh, to offer enough shock value to want to act as a catalyst, you know, either we're repulsed by something or attracted to something or other. More the feeling that I was trying to um, come across with is that um, Gurdjieff mentions that the element of luck is like we each have the tools of perception, we each have the same hearts, lungs, fingertips that touch, ears, eyeballs, we all have the same facilities. Some of us suffer more than others, and that suffering can be transformed if we're lucky enough to have that something. 
that has the desire or the inclination to want to transform. Now, in, in terms of just interactions in life, um, we can give so much energy to people. How much energy is given out to people? Is it a question of just feeding people that are hungry? Is it a question of giving energy to people that perhaps have that inclination or that element of love? And not everyone does. We can say everyone has the Buddha mind. That may be true. Great. But not everyone has luck. So where does the energy go? How does one save oneself in the struggle to save other people? First, I'm, I'm just trying to to get to your place. I don't I don't have the sense of luck um, in my. I have the sense of karma. And I also don't necessarily. Um, I don't know. I mean, we each we each work in the arenas we work in with the people we work in. I. It's not that. It's not that uh, selective. I. I mean, I know in my case. I decide to work. Uh, in Zen, I'm not working in Christianity and Judaism. I don't know whether it was, whether it was, um, I don't know how to answer you. I mean, I, I wound up, I could look at myself and I can say who I'm working with. I don't have enough insight to be able to say that uh, that person has the right luck or is going to make the right transformation, so I'll work with that one and not that one. I do find myself working with some people and not with others because there's affinity or non-affinity or whatever. I, I don't... I hear you saying... I, I, all I can say in my case, I'm not uh, deliberately looking at people and saying, well, they're... Uh, well, this guy, uh, let's see, he's got about three kalpas, and that one's two kalpas. I work with the two-kalpa case. Uh, <laughs> Um, a requirement for people to move into your project. Right. That they wanted to. That right. they wanted to get out of the um, reoccurrence of the uh, poverty level. Mm -hmm. Now that's, that is you intuitive enough to see something in that. Uh, no, I mean, that's an arena I want to work in. I mean, I'll work in another arena at another time. But in that case, here's an arena I want to work in. I want, I'm building this house for people who want to get out of the welfare system. That's this particular building. And I set up some guidelines. Do I know that they're all really... I mean, I don't have a litmus test. I've, what I have is, is uh, I do my best. I look at all the ingredients. My ingredients involve 80 families, 50 families. I, I take the ingredients. I created a program. I made my selections. So I am work, choosing the arena I'm working in. I think we all do that. Uh, you guys have a committee to accept members and people will apply and you'll accept some and you won't accept others. 
you, you, everybody sets up their criteria. You have some friends, you have people that you don't, that you're not friends with, people you invite in for dinner, others you don't. I mean, that I see is sort of a natural, a natural thing. We all choose. And we can't work with everybody. We can't be friends. I had a friend who, who I consider a saint, uh, Manny Margolis. Manny Margolis died a number of years ago. He was married to the daughter of uh, one of the blacklisted ten, a guy who did, uh, directed, or wrote the Sierra Madre screenplay with Humphrey Bogart. I, I forget. It was a very famous um, Sierra Tre Treasure of Sierra Madre. He was married to her for a day. They were going together for about five years. They got married and got divorced the next day. But he was a saint. And... Um, and you, you know how I know? He, it's, it's, it's a little digression, but the way I know is that he lived in, in L.A. In, um, in this apartment that he didn't answer his mail for a long time and, and he had to start using uh, kerosene lanterns because electricity cut him off. And uh, after about two years, he finally opened his mailbox and he had a, a note in there to come down to the IRS because he hadn't been paying his taxes. I mean, he hadn't been doing anything. And a, a, they made him fill out his application, and under occupation, he wrote saint. That's how I know he's a saint. <laughs> but Manny, Manny told me something that I never will forget. He says, nobody has more than two or three friends. That's an important thing. He says, it's impossible. So we're all sort of making selections. Now, I think that's just a natural, that's just the way it works. Um, I don't go past that. I, I, I'm not answering you, but and it's an age-old issue of. Uh, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? And do you want to mess around with dogs? <sighs> you, uh, you, you, keep, you kept saying that uh, the vows were so important to you and that's what led you, was so central to what Deal that one with, with diocese. I remember him in L.A. having a lot of trouble with that too. <laughs> that's, that's a good one for you guys. To <laughs> that was. Well, this is. You haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to take this thing and make it into a first a one-week ritual, and then a three-month ritual. <coughs> and I am not a liturgical type. Life is Am I on your mailing list? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you do this service every once in a while, or, or how you know? Do you do this with the 
Grayson family? Kind of no, no. This is, we do this at the sanctuary. But I use this for all uh, memorial services. Um, I use it a lot. It's it's our theme song, <laughs> and it's uh, it's more than just it, it's a whole ritual for me. It's uh, this is a lifetime thing that I am will be evolving a whole liturgy out of. Um, it's part of my. I love to do all these crazy things. Yeah. I almost hate to ask a question because I feel like I know you told me the answer which you were going for. But I feel like I'm going to return to Albany and um, still feel frustrated because the, um, the the political action that I am involved in, social action that I'm involved in, to whatever small degree. Um, I, I just always feel frustrated. I don't know if what I'm doing is making a difference. And I... Again... You got two. You got two things you can do. You can be concerned about whether it makes a difference. You can do it for see why you want to do what you're doing right now and do that. And they're two different things, and you can do them. You can separate them a little. One is do what you what the action that you are involved in that you somehow have chosen. Do it. Do it with all your might. As a whole separate thing, maybe once a year. Uh, say, is it making a difference? The answer will be yes and no. It depends on, on, on your scope. The answer, of course, is yes. It's making a profound difference. And the answer is, of course, no. In the scale of things, it's, it's no difference. But that's not a very important answer. That's the answer that we could always say, oh no, nothing makes a difference. What's the difference if, if one person gets enlightened? What's the difference if, if one person gets fed? What's the difference if one child feels a little bit of love? There's millions that aren't. 40,000 children die a day because of starvation. What's the difference if I feed one? So, on one hand, of course not. No difference. You're not going to make a difference. On the other hand, Mother Teresa said, start off with one person. Pick one person up off the street, and you've made all the difference in the world. So that, that question shouldn't be there. I mean, give love to your kid, and you've made all the difference in the world. You don't have to worry about, am I doing anything? Give love to yourself, and you've made all the difference in the world. For one second. Sit for one second, and you've made all the difference in the world, I think. And you can say, no, I haven't made. So, uh, that, you know, why worry about that? And then, if you want to worry about it, say, okay, this is going to be a thing I'm going to worry about, whether I'm making a difference or not. And you can list all the things, you know, you can do the statistics, how many billions of moments there are, and how many people there are and the years and the eons and the kalpas. I love to put everything in kalpas because it shows, it gets us a little bit into a scale. If you can think in terms of kalpas, um, you know how long kalpas. You all know about kalpa? The, the wings, you, what do you, you use the wings one? <laughs> there's, there's different definitions of kalpas. It's a long time. 
I have down here integrating monastic and secular, but I think we covered that. That's probably you, and when you're here and then you go home, and and how do you carry Mount Trumper to wherever you are? And, and I said, leave Mount Trumper here. It's, you got no choice. <laughs> Something like that. Um, That's the way you see it work. And it's like you were talking about nourishment, you know, nourishment from your from your practices. So that for sure, you, there is always that integration that you find in the middle of the balance. And there's no like going up, there's no going down. I mean, this kind of this nourishing you, you're talking, you always, you're always going back to the fact of nourishing. And I asked a question about like, the separation between practice. Thank you. 
Well, there's two answers there. Uh, the, the question is, do I offer, uh, in a nutshell, she said it a few times, but do I offer Zazen to the homeless folks we're working with, right? We have, um, the, and I said there's two, two answers. One is that in the groups, when I work with the families, we sit. We don't call it Zazen, but we do sit. We start off our sessions by sitting. That's one hand. And then another thing that's going on, and this has maybe again has a little to do with my uh, egocentrism. Um, I I'm anxious to see a new form of Zazen practice arise out of my work with the homeless. So there, there, there are people asking me to sit. And they're going to come to the Zen community and they're going to sit in our, with us. And that's one thing that's happening. So I, I, in the groups that I do with the, in the work I do with the, the folks, my group starts off sitting. There's a lot of different groups that they're in. And then there are some people that want to get involved in the Zen community itself as members in, in that practice. But I also have uh, something that I've been nurturing for quite a while of wanting something organic to happen, unfold, and I don't know what it is, that will be a new form of uh, Zen practice. Now, what do I mean by new form? I mean, sitting itself is not going to be different, but there's going to be something new about it. I know it in my bones. And <clears throat> for that to happen, I feel, and I may have to be driven off away from these folks because they know already too much about the Zen community. For that to happen, and what I'm looking for, I need it to be very unconditioned. I, I, I want it to arise out of the people. So that's, a, that's a whole other kind of thing that I'm trying to do, uh, that I've had in my head for, uh, and that I've been t- actually talking to my, my, to my Zumi Roshi about for maybe eight years now. That I'm looking for something to organically arise, and I feel that in order for that to happen, I've got to strip everything away from me. Now, that will be an interesting form of Zazen for me. At the same time, there is some, you know, to answer your question, some people want to start sitting with us, and each of the groups that I work with, I'm working with, in a, uh, uh, we, we have some sitting going on. I don't know if that answers. I guess the reason the question comes up is twofold, two. One, working with students here who are involved in a lot of different social action, and they're... <coughs> Their frustration with the, the general ang- level of anger and frustration that we've been involved in. And you know, the struggle of how to introduce how they're working with you know, you know, people in a way that doesn't seem kind of artificial. And my own, I, mean, I guess the, the first place you feel kind of a great wave of pain is where you, you keep coming back to and, and working with. <coughs> With women's groups, 
was where that, that just washed through me. And there was so much anger and, and pain that, you know, how to, to let that organic way of working, stillness and empowerment and all of that, all of this, there's a life calling it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, in, in, in terms of what I'm doing, uh, the people that we're working with have a lot of anger and pain. Uh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of stuff there. Um, somehow, it's, it, for me, it's very exciting to work with all of that. Because <clears throat> with all of that, is, uh, the group I'm working with happens to also be very frank out there. I find that easier than, than working with people who have that in, but don't let any of it out. Um, I, I'm very excited about what I'm doing and what I was just talking the other day we had this, this first tenant meeting and it was, boy, it was all out there. I mean, and uh, we, we hired a management company we have a management company managing the building. Black guy who's been doing this for a long time is great. He's tough. And uh, after the meeting, he said to me that that he, I, uh, he says, boy, these people have a, a lot. They have years and years and years of stuff being thrown down at them. And he's shifting the way he's working. He's transforming. I mean, it's, it really bowled me over. It's great, I think. But what I, after the meeting, I, I said, Saddam, this is going to be something else in a year. I th the patient's parameter is extremely important in this kind of work. And sort of just taking, letting it all out. There's so much stuff there. And, you know, I mean, there's many great reasons for it to be there. Um, I wouldn't want to see it not come out and, and, and work with. How does our Zen fit in all of this? As I say, we start off by sitting. I don't know. I don't know what the full panorama is. Uh, but mark it down in your books. Ten years from now, there's going to be something very interesting arising out of the, out of the streets of Yonkers. Uh, there's going to be, even before that, but in terms of what you're calling Zen practice, <laughs> there'll be a whole... See, one of the things that excites that, yeah, uh, one of the things that I think of is that you know, Mother Teresa, when she first started doing her work in, in India, people came from all over to join her and to work with her. But if you look at her order now, majority are local poor Indians that revolutionized that and made that order. Well, for me, that's the case right now. There's a, there's a tremendous, I think, a tremendous uh, new, kind of, new kind of something out there in the streets. And I see that as going to evolve. And that's what I'm sort of waiting to work with, or trying to work with. Um, I, we covered everything. Especially when you say these people don't want to be homeless. Did you say that about
a lot of, they don't want to be homeless. Right. So, hearing that, they don't want to be homeless, already puts something from the people out. When like, there's a timing where they would, it seems like they will find some kind of uh, zazen or whatever it is to uh, push to to not be homeless, to move that out from them. Yeah. I was going to ask you something, but it's the question is being answered by what's happening today. I was going to ask you. If you see a place or a need or a benefit for communication between a place like Zen Mountain Monastery and, and uh, CC and Zen, whatever your place is called. Um, so I guess I would just say that it seems exciting to me that that communication has happened. And I maybe would ask you if you agree. Sure. <laughs> that, uh, this is uh, my year for the partner family, communication and integration. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Are you involved in um, politics outside of the local local sphere at all, or do you see yourself getting involved? Well, I've just I asked um, uh, Jerry Brown to run. I'm setting him up. Yeah, he's running on the Zen Party. We've, we've <laughs> I'm, when you say you're you know, involved in politics, I'm, I'm not. I work in, I, uh, I network. I, I go around and I talk with people and stuff like that and on various levels. But I'm not involved in, in politics per se. I'm, I'm a priest and I stay neutral. But that, that is actually also true. I'm, I'm very close with, say, a number of the parties and a number of the people running in Yonkers, for example. And I actually have been asked to be on, a, one, on advisory committees. But in my role of what I am as a priest, that's not appropriate. I'm friendly with them, but I'm not in politics. I know different people. I'm close with the Republicans and the Democrats and with the Independent in, in, uh, in Yonkers. And I would try to do that on all levels. I, I try to meet people and to work with them. Again, this bringing you. But not in politics. Any one of those three who are running, or any of them uh, would make your job more difficult? Let me put it the other way. There, there are some that would make it more easy. I'm close. All three would support what we're doing. Um, one of them happens to be the co-chair of, of the Grayson Family Inn and is the reason I'm in Yonkers. And uh, if he were to win, and he's a very powerful figure, we would be doing a lot of different things. So it would be better for us if he were to win. What's that? Martinelli, yeah. But I'm also very close with the Democratic. He's on an independent ticket. I'm also close with the Democrat. The the Republican is in Italian. It's called the Schlemiel, I think. It's not nice to say, but uh, 
he would work with us because we're working in a poor part of town. And he's a meditator, the only one of the three. He's a Kung Fu instructor. He sits daily. Arch-conservative and ignoramus. <laughs> so somehow it doesn't fit. We're close because he's a meditator and I'm a Zen priest. Other than that, our politics are... <laughs> uh, but he will, he will not be against any of the work I'm doing on the poor part of town. If I try to do what we're doing, if I try to put an AIDS facility on his part of town, or if I try to integrate his part of town, he would go through the wall. The other two wouldn't. So I've got to teach them how to sit and, uh, or, or get him stop sitting so he, they, don't, they can't say that. <laughs> so you can't always tell what you're going to get. Oh, I'm sorry. The avenue is open to um, family planning, uh, pregnancy planning, abortion, the whole range are very much keyed in to the poverty, housing, uh, welfare scheme. Uh, and that would seem like a natural uh, place for you to be able to speak powerfully. Have great impact. <laughs> I'm, I'm being lobbied. <laughs> you know how many natural places there are to do things in? Come do it. My, I don't do anything. I find people who are interested in doing things and I invite them to do it. But I don't do anything. <laughs> That's how it gets done. It's uh, Somebody comes up with, with passion about something. And I say, Great! And then they do it or they don't, see? But I won't tell you what to do. <laughs> but they're all, there's so many important issues that it gets confusing. There really are. There's another fellow, I think it was Manny, the saint. He said this, too. He said, you know, there are eight doors open. But guess what? You can only go through one of them at a time. Cardinal O'Connor's position on abortion is a guide to those in his community who are looking for religious leadership in their opinion-making, their uh, resource funneling. You know, so you do being in your position, I think you have. <laughs> 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 I mean, I have a job. And being in my position, what I need is somebody with your energy and passion. That's what it needs. That's the ingredient. That's the ingredient. So, so the ending message for the day is be passionate. Uh, go for your, go for your dreams. Follow your juices. Um, sit well don't rest until you are a fully accomplished Buddha or at least Bodhisattva and if you attain the 31 marks go for the last one which I don't know which 
31 you're going to get. There's 32 altogether. <laughs> Just don't stop, is all I'm saying. Don't look at some place as a resting place. And then, on top of that, rest every once in a while. So, <laughs> so thank you again for inviting me. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org.